You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 301, The Evacuation of Wilmington. Last week, General Cornwallis surrendered his army at Yorktown, marking the last major campaign of the American Revolution. At the time, however, no one knew that this would be the final campaign. The main British army remained in New York, another army held Charleston, South Carolina, and British soldiers continued to hold other coastal towns as well. The day after the surrender, George Washington sent Admiral de Grasse a message proposing that the combined forces move south to Charleston and take out the British garrison there. Washington believed that they could take Charleston in two months and that this would destroy the last hope of a British comeback. The French admiral had already overstayed his time in North America. It was already late October, and he had planned to return to the West Indies by this time. This was his primary military mission. In order to ensure that there was no last-ditch effort by the British fleet to retake Yorktown and rescue Cornwallis's army, de Grasse remained off the coast of Virginia for about two weeks. He proposed assistance by sailing Lafayette's division down to Wilmington, North Carolina, to take out the Loyalist stronghold there. But in the end, he rejected doing even that. When DeGrasse told Washington that he was returning to the West Indies without engaging in any more actions in North America, Washington requested that he at least consider returning in the spring for another campaign. The Admiral would not make any commitments, replying that his poor health prevented him from making any plans for the following year. With the departure of the French fleet in early November and the removal of the British prisoners inland, Washington's army left Yorktown. Rochambeau's French army would remain in Williamsburg over the winter. Washington deployed a few Continental regiments south to join up with Nathaniel Greene in South Carolina. But the bulk of the Continental Army marched north, back to the area around New York City, to continue challenging the British presence there. On his way back, Washington, along with his wife Martha, stopped at the home of his brother-in-law to visit his stepson Jack Custis, who was recovering from camp fever that had afflicted so many on the Yorktown campaign. Jack Custis died while his parents were visiting. Washington took a grieving Martha back to Mount Vernon, where they mourned the death of her only remaining child. The rest of the Continental Army marched north without their commander. After a week, the Washingtons left Mount Vernon for Philadelphia to confer with Congress, and after a few months, he moved to his new headquarters up in Newburgh, New York. As I mentioned, Washington had hoped to deploy General Lafayette to take the British outpost at Wilmington, North Carolina, with the assistance of the French fleet. The actual British presence in Wilmington consisted of a single regiment, the 82nd of foot under Major James Craig. The commander came from a Scottish family 
and had been an officer since his commission as an ensign in the army in 1763 at the age of 15. In 1774, Lieutenant Craig transferred to America, and a year later he was wounded in the assault at Bunker Hill. After his recovery, he transferred with his regiment to Quebec, taking part in the invasion of New York. He was wounded twice during that campaign before surrendering with the rest of the army at Saratoga. As the son of a judge, Captain Craig, by this point, also served as judge advocate under Burgoyne and helped negotiate the surrender terms. His notable leadership led General Burgoyne to recommend his promotion to major and given command of the 82nd Regiment. Craig spent some time recovering from battlefield injuries. His regiment spent a couple of years in Canada, where he primarily resided over court-martials before being brought to the Carolinas following the British occupation of Charleston in 1780. Shortly after his arrival in Charleston in January of 1781, Major Craig was ordered by General Cornwallis to occupy Wilmington. The town served as a British supply base, collecting food from the surrounding region to ship to the British garrison at Charleston. At Wilmington, Craig actively built up defenses for his regiment. He sent patrols into the surrounding region, seizing supplies and arresting suspected patriot leaders, as well as confiscating their property. After Cornwallis fought at Guilford Courthouse, his army took shelter at Wilmington for several weeks before marching north to Virginia. The British leadership saw Craig as an active and capable officer. The patriots came to despise him as a cruel and brutal opponent. Many loyalists joined Craig at Wilmington, strengthening the British position. Among these was the loyalist David Fanning. Orphaned at a young age, Fanning grew up in Virginia before moving to western South Carolina a few years before the war began. He enlisted in a loyalist regiment when the war began and initially served as sergeant. He fought several early skirmishes between loyalist and patriot militia in the state and was captured several times. During much of the early war years, when southern loyalists were trying to lay low, Fanning was either commanding loyalist militia in the field or hiding from patriot militia or as a prisoner. In 1779, he accepted a pardon from Governor Rutledge and returned home. Less than a year later, the British captured Charleston. Fanning once again took command of a loyalist militia and set about attacking patriot strongholds. Following the Patriot victory at Kings Mountain in late 1780, Fanning had to leave South Carolina. He lived quietly in North Carolina until General Cornwallis moved into the state. Once again, Fanning recruited Loyalist militia and fought against the Patriots. When the British Army retreated to Wilmington after Guilford Courthouse, Fanning maintained an inland base at Cox Mill near Charlotte. Major Craig granted him a commission in July 1781 as a colonel of Loyalist militia. On that authority, Fanning collected a force of 22 Loyalist companies from the surrounding region. Rather than keep his force together, he typically rode with a few dozen men who could strike hard and move quickly. His men attacked the homes of Patriots, captured and destroyed enemy supplies, and skirmished with Patriot militia. One of his first missions after gaining his commission in July was to attack a Patriot court-martial that was trying several Loyalists who were likely to be executed. Fanning rescued the prisoners and took 56 prisoners of his own. 
including the court officials and Patriot militia officers. Over the course of the summer and early fall, he fought dozens of skirmishes with Patriot militia as the Patriots were increasingly taking control of North Carolina. By September of 1781, Fanning found his Loyalist militia had grown to nearly 1,000 men. Despite the fact that the British Army had largely abandoned North Carolina, the Loyalists had faith in Fanning's ability to fight and lead. He was joined by several other Loyalist militias, increasing his army to well over a 1,000. After conferring with Major Craig in Wilmington, Fanning took the bulk of his militia army on a new mission. In June, the Patriots had elected a new governor of North Carolina, Thomas Burke. Governor Burke had set up in Hillsborough. Burke was focused on establishing Patriot rule in the state and wiping out Loyalist militias like those under Fanning. Colonel Fanning set out in September to capture the new governor. Because many of his new volunteers did not have arms, Fanning took the 600 or so who were armed and marched on Hillsborough. After a night march, his Loyalists arrived at Hillsborough early in the morning of September 12th. He divided his men into three divisions and surrounded the town. Fanning's men surrounded the governor's mansion, where the governor and his aide were mounting an armed defense. Fanning called for a parley and assured the governor that if he surrendered, his life and those of his aides would be spared. The governor surrendered and was taken prisoner. There was a small contingent of Continentals in the town who set up a defense inside a barricaded church. These were newly enlisted Continentals without much training or experience, and they also eventually surrendered after a brief firefight. Fanning also released 30 Loyalist prisoners being held in the Hillsborough Jail. These men had been condemned to death and had expected to be hanging from a gallows later that day. By 9 a.m., Fanning's Loyalists had secured the town taking over 200 prisoners, including the governor, the city council, as well as the Continental soldiers and militia. In the fight to capture the town, they had killed 15 and wounded another 20. The Loyalists suffered only one man wounded. After securing the town, the Loyalist militia looted some homes and got drunk on a great deal of liquor that they had discovered in town. Colonel Fanning had to restore order in his army and was able to leave town by about 2 p.m., Fanning feared that Patriot militia in the area would engage in a counterattack. He marched his army back toward Cox Mill, although some of the Loyalist militia were too drunk to keep up with the column as it withdrew and ended up being captured by Patriot militia who pursued the column. Now, Fanning was correct that the Patriots would come after him. North Carolina militia general John Butler got word of the Loyalist attack on Hillsborough and the capture of the governor. He assembled a Patriot militia that hoped to catch Fanning's column as it withdrew and to free the governor and other top officials. Butler was an experienced leader who fought several battles, including Camden and Guilford Courthouse. He remained in North Carolina with his militia when the Continentals under Nathaniel Green moved into South Carolina. On September 13th, the day after the raid on Hillsborough, Butler's Patriot militia set up an ambush at a ford across Cane Creek near Lindley's Mill. When the head of Fanning's Loyalists began to cross the ford, Butler's Patriots fired a volley into the enemy. Hearing the gunfire, Colonel Fanning secured his prisoners to the rear and galloped forward to take command of the fight. As his men engaged the Patriots, he sent another contingent around behind the enemy to strike them from the rear. 
Even after getting attacked on two sides, the Patriot militia under Butler maintained their fire. Fanning was shot in the arm and had to turn over command to Colonel Archibald McDougald. The battle continued for several hours before the Patriots finally withdrew. The battle was exceptionally bloody, with just over 1,000 men engaged, casualty rates totaled over 250. There weren't really good accurate records of the casualties, and most of the men were militia in civilian clothing, so it's not really clear how many men were lost on each side. Colonel McDougald continued to lead the Loyalists. The column moved more slowly since they were carrying a large number of wounded, and many of the horsemen had lost their horses in the battle, so they were marching on foot. The following morning, the Patriots attacked the column again, but this was a much smaller group of less than two dozen men who were quickly dispersed. On September 23rd, about ten days after the skirmish at Lindley's Mill, a group of Patriot militia struck the column again, still attempting to free Governor Burke and the other prisoners taken at Hillsborough. The Loyalists fell back into defensive lines near Hammond's Creek Bridge. The bulk of the Loyalists fought a delaying action while Colonel McDougald marched his prisoners toward Wilmington. As the Loyalists reached Livingston's Creek, they encountered another column of infantry marching toward them from the other direction. Now, this one turned out to be Major Craig, who had received word of Burke's capture and personally marched out with a detachment of regulars to provide support. A group of 50 or so Patriot horsemen attacked the group, but then withdrew in the face of Craig's regulars. The British pursued the horsemen for a few miles before running into a defensive position on the road controlled by 200 Patriots under the militia army commanded by John Butler. Although the British were outnumbered, they charged the defenses and forced the militia to run away. With that, Craig was able to get his column and prisoners back to Wilmington. A few weeks later, Fanning's loyalists captured a Patriot named James Harding. After being brought back as a prisoner to Fanning's camp, Harding convinced the Loyalist colonel that he was a Loyalist himself and had been looking for an opportunity to escape from the Patriots. After several days in camp, Harding informed Fanning of the presence of a company of militia camped nearby on Deep River. Harding offered to go meet with the militia and lead them into a Loyalist ambush. After doing so, Harding returned and rode with Fanning's Loyalists to the ambush site. Now, as it turned out, Harding was still a patriot. He had actually gone and informed the militia commander that he would lead the Loyalists into a patriot ambush. At the site, Harding gave a signal and dashed toward the Patriots, hidden in the woods. The Patriots fired a volley, killing and wounding several Loyalist horsemen, but Fanning and the bulk of his column escaped. Loyalists had hoped that Governor Burke's capture would break the Patriot spirit and inspire popular opinion to believe that the Loyalists could control North Carolina. In fact, the incident had the opposite impact, as more Patriot militia turned out to fight. In addition to General John Butler, another military leader had recently returned to the state, General Griffith Rutherford, who had been a militia officer in North Carolina for over 20 years and also served in the colonial legislature. He fought the Regulator Movement before the war and was an experienced Indian fighter against the Cherokee. He was a firm patriot who began the war against the Loyalists in the Snow Campaign of 1775, Rutherford had led his militia in the battles taking place in South Carolina and Georgia, 
1780, he had called out his militia army to fight under Horatio Gates at Camden. Although many soldiers fled the field at Camden, Rutherford did not. He fought until the enemy shot him in the leg. Another soldier slashed his head with a saber. Rutherford survived his wounds, but was taken prisoner, and he spent time in a Charleston prison before being moved to St. Augustine in East Florida. In June of 1781, Rutherford was exchanged. The British delivered him to Philadelphia, and he returned to North Carolina to find that the Loyalists had stripped everything of value from his plantation. Shortly thereafter, he began planning a campaign to recapture Wilmington. Following the Battle of Lindley's Mill, Rutherford called out the militia for a campaign to recapture Wilmington. Within two weeks, he had a militia army of 1,100 men under his command. His forces joined with the smaller militia army under General Butler, giving a combined army of about 1,400 by early October. The army overran a Loyalist outpost at Rockfish Creek on October 15th. The Loyalists, who numbered between 3 and 600, fell back. They made a stand nearby on a hill that covered the road out of Raft Swamp. The Loyalists disassembled the bridge so that the enemy could not approach quickly. A division of Patriot Dragoons, under the command of Major Joseph Graham, rode up to the bridge. Although the bridge was disabled, they found they could easily ford the swampy land and charge the Loyalist lines. The surprised Loyalists fired one volley, then broke and ran. The Patriot horsemen ran them down cutting the fleeing Loyalists to pieces with their sabers. A few dozen Loyalists paused for a delaying action that allowed many others to escape. The Patriots killed most of these defenders before they also fled into the nearby swamp where the Patriots would not follow. This was the last significant opposition before all of the Loyalists withdrew into Wilmington. That same day, Colonel Fanning felt sufficiently recovered from his wound at Lindley's Mill to gather about 170 mounted Loyalists near Brush Creek. The Patriots had been trying to hunt down Fanning, who had been hiding since his injury. Fanning received word that a division of 600 militia were marching on his position. Some of his Loyalists fled, fearing they would be overrun, but Fanning formed the rest into two defensive lines and prepared to receive the enemy. Now, it's not clear how many enemy engaged in this fight, but it resulted in a firefight of about an hour, during which the Loyalists lost three killed and three wounded. The Patriots had one killed and several wounded before pulling back. At that point, Fanning expected the enemy would regroup and return in greater numbers. His men dispersed and made their way up into the Uhari Mountains. The militia concentrated at Brown Marsh, about 50 miles from Wilmington, to prepare for an assault on the town. Acting Governor Alexander Martin who replaced Thomas Burke after his capture, addressed the army and encouraged them to expel the remaining British and Loyalist forces from the state. On October 23rd, Rutherford deployed the bulk of his mounted militia, about 300 men, to the southwest side of Cape Fear, where the larger army of militia marched on foot to assault Wilmington from the north. In Wilmington, Major Craig had his regiment of regulars along with a Loyalist army that was ready to fight the oncoming army. He was confident not only that he could defend the city, but was prepared to mount an offensive against the Patriot militia if he could just get some more supplies from Charleston. Instead, word arrived from General Alexander Leslie, the new British commander at Charleston, 
that General Cornwallis had surrendered at Yorktown and that Craig should evacuate his army in Wilmington by ship and sail to Charleston. Craig was not happy about the orders. He did have sufficient ships for his soldiers, but he would have to leave behind a great many loyalists and civilians who would suffer the wrath of the Patriots. The final evacuation took several weeks. Craig spiked his cannons, the ones he couldn't take with him, and burned tons of supplies in order to deny them to the enemy. On November 17th, Light Horse Harry Lee arrived to inform the militia of the British surrender at Yorktown. By this time, the militia army under Rutherford was camped only four miles from Wilmington. As the American militia entered Wilmington on the morning of November 18th, they were able to skirmish with the last company of regulars as they were boarding their transport ships. The British finally boarded their last transports, which carried them out of the city, down toward Cape Fear and the Atlantic, as the Patriot militia advanced into the city in time to watch the last ships sail away. The evacuation of Wilmington ended the British presence in North Carolina. The next week, though, we're going to take a continuing look at the war in South Carolina. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show, part of the Airwave Media Network. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, George Davis, Mike Hager, John Celentano, Michael Mulhern, and the Sons of the American Revolution. You can check out the SAR podcast at fastfunhistory.com. Thanks to Robert Morris Circle supporter TJ Walker, and welcome to our newest member of the Robert Morris Circle, Curtis Johnson. I really appreciate everyone who supports this podcast either through an ongoing subscription on Patreon or through one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo. As you know, all Patreon supporters, for as little as $2 a month, get access to ad-free episodes, and for $10 or more per month, you get a different magnet each month with a flag from the American Revolution. Some folks are getting quite a collection of these. This week, we covered the British kidnapping of an American governor. After his capture, the British transferred Governor Burke of North Carolina to a prison on an island in Charleston Harbor. 
After a couple of months, he received parole and returned to North Carolina. Initially, Governor Burke respected his parole and simply stayed at home. Then he received some death threats from local loyalists, and he ended up returning to Hillsborough and resuming his duties as governor. Most people, including many patriots, viewed this as a violation of his parole and therefore highly dishonorable. A failure to abide by the terms of a parole could mean that the enemy might stop paroling future prisoners, which means many of them would die miserably in overcrowded prisons. In the spring of 1782, Burke ended up resigning his governorship and went into retirement, and he died just over a year later. One of the other people we met this week was Loyalist Colonel David Fanning. He remained in North Carolina after the British evacuation of Wilmington, and he continued fighting a guerrilla war against the Patriots. But with the loss of the British in Wilmington, he lost his source of supplies and ammunition. He tried to negotiate a parole with General Butler and agreed to several truces, but they never seemed to hold. There was just too much bad blood between the Patriots and Loyalists. In the spring of 1782, Fanning got married to a 16-year-old girl named Sarah Carr, and the couple made their way to British-occupied Charleston. A year later, when North Carolina's legislature passed an act of pardon for Loyalists, this happened in 1783, Fanning was one of three men named as not eligible for this general pardon. Fanning and his family moved to St. Augustine in East Florida, but after that was turned over to Spain, he moved to Canada. Fanning would later write a narrative of his time in the Revolution in part of his effort to get the British government to make good on his claim for losses. He eventually received a payment of a mere 60 pounds, and many years after that he actually got a small pension from the British government. In Canada, Fanning also got elected to the House of Assembly for Kings County, where he served for a decade. In 1800, he was expelled from that body based on charges that he had attempted to rape a 15-year-old girl. Fanning was found guilty of those charges and sentenced to death. He later received a pardon, but was exiled from the province. Still in his 40s at the time of his exile, Fanning spent the final 25 years of his life living quietly on a small farm in Nova Scotia. British Major James Craig remained in Charleston after the evacuation of Wilmington, and he remained there until the final evacuation of Charleston in December of 1782. After that, he served in Ireland for a time, then fought as a colonel in the wars with France. In 1795, Craig was an instrumental officer in the capture of South Africa from the Dutch. He would later serve in India as the British focused on consolidating power on the subcontinent. In 1807, George III appointed Craig governor of Canada. Craig was a capable military officer, but not so much a politician. He alienated French-speaking Canadians and hired a man named John Henry to try to draw New England out of the Union and into Canada. His correspondence with Henry over New England later became public and was a factor in the U.S. decision to go to war with Britain in 1812. That year, 1812, Craig did receive a promotion to general, but died a few days after receiving his promotion. My book recommendation this week is called Nothing But Blood and Slaughter, Volume 3, 1781, by Patrick O'Kelly. This is a multi-volume series that attempts to cover 
every military battle and skirmish in the Carolinas and Georgia during the Revolutionary War. Volume 3 covers all the events of 1781. So, if you have a real focus on the Southern War, and you want more information about the less famous conflicts, this book is a great resource for that. The author, O'Kelly, is a U.S. Army officer and has also been actively involved in American Revolution reenacting for many years. My online recommendation this week is called Narrative of Colonel David Fanning. As I mentioned earlier, the loyalist Colonel Fanning wrote this narrative when he was trying to collect British compensation for his war efforts. As such, there's probably some bias in the author writing this to put himself in the best possible light, and perhaps even exaggerating some events, but it is a great primary source from one of the combatants of the fighting in North Carolina. I've linked to an 1864 reprint of this narrative, which also includes some good explanatory notes. There are some more recent versions of the book for sale, but I picked this one because it's in the public domain and it's available as a free download on archive.org. Go to my blog or website for a direct link to it. My question this week comes from Steve Sunison. He asks, where did a council of war come from? Was it a codified practice or based on custom only? Was it only the highest ranking military leader on the field who could call it? How many would participate? Was it always majority rule? Was a written agenda prepared before the meeting? And did both sides follow the same procedure? Well, councils of war were not really formal military procedures. In any military campaign, there is, or should be, a very clear chain of command. The highest-ranking officer gets to make all the important decisions, and everybody must obey him. Now, that said, military commanders may not always have the right answers. They often value input from subordinate officers who may have opinions or know facts on the ground that the commander is not privy to. Holding a council of war gives the commander an opportunity to receive this input. There's really no formal structure to these councils, and different commanders use them in very different ways. Sometimes a commander might just want to provide himself with some cover in case a particular strategy fails. Having all or most of his subordinate officers on record as supporting a given strategy would help to provide that cover. In those sorts of cases, the commander probably would be sure to keep a written record. In other cases, a commander might really want advice. George Washington, for example, was careful not to express his own opinion in such councils until other officers had spoken. He did not want yes-men to agree with whatever he said. He wanted candid views on what might be the right course of action. Of course, once he got all the input, he was free to make whatever decision he liked. In any of these cases, a commander was simply seeking advice. Even if 90% of his officers voted against a strategy, the commander was still free to do what he wanted. The commander could also decide who participated in these meetings, although leaving out a senior officer would tend to be a breach of protocol and taken as an insult by that officer. That said, there were often hard feelings between a particular commander and a subordinate, so being left out of one of these events could happen. Some meetings had very specific agendas to answer a specific question or series of questions Others were very broad and open to all sorts of input. Again, all this was up to the commander and exactly what he wanted. Every commander had his own way of holding councils and did not need to be consistent even from one meeting to the next. 
I know that the British Army had held such meetings for many generations before the Revolution and that American officers were still holding such meetings during the Civil War. I suspect that they continue to this day in some form or another. While a commander needs to project confidence, he also needs to receive advice from others from time to time. Now, how well a commander can use or reject that advice likely determines just how good a commander he is. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, please reach out to me either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, Quora, or Reddit. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.